When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Kluber.com, the Friday podcast. Browns and Eagles on Sunday. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko, and a very special guest on this Gotta Watch the Tape. Mary Kay Cabot is going to join us because before she rushes out to practice on this crazy Friday for the Cleveland Browns. But we are breaking down two big things, as usual. In the second half of this podcast, key matchups for Eagles, Browns from Ellis Williams. Stay tuned for that. But off the top, the trade. The trade that we cannot get away from this week, that we don't want to get away from, that we want to embrace Carson Wentz, the number two pick in the 2016 draft, could have been to the Browns. Instead, they trade that pick to the Eagles. He has a Super Bowl ring, and now he's coming to Cleveland. Scott Patsko is going to lay that out, and Mary Kay Cabot is going to chime in on what she thinks of the whole thing five years later. So we'll start with that. Scott Patsko, dive in on this Carson Wentz deal and where it stands now. All right. So Sashi Brown was promoted to executive VP of football ops on January 3rd, 2016. And a little more than three months later, he made the trade that is in a lot of ways came to define his time here. April 20th, about eight days before the draft, he traded away the number two overall pick to the Eagles and got five picks in return. The Eagles also got a, uh, a 2017 fourth rounder uh, in this deal, but the Browns got three picks in 2016, a first rounder in 2017 and then a second rounder in 2018. So then they turned around and they traded each of those five picks to get seven additional picks. So they turned that number two pick into 12 picks over three drafts. So at this point, it became clear that Sashi's strategy was to kind of generate the two biggest assets that a GM can have, cap space and draft picks. And he let free agents walk, he cut some other pricey contracts and he created cap space. So now he was collecting the draft picks. And Sashi wanted to build through the draft, which is never a sure bet, as we know. So the strategy is to get as many swings as you can at the draft. That meant using that number two pick to create all those swings. So before we get into what those draft picks became, I figured we should probably start with talking about that strategy for rebuilding an NFL franchise, because there was a lot of debate and controversy over just that. So just off the top, just again, to give, I just want to give people a little bit of a tease. Is uh, did 11 of the 12 picks became all pros? Is that right? Uh, it's close. It's, I think that's it might have been only 10. <laughs> I do want to. So as we put this in context, and I do think part of the reason we're talking about this on got to watch the tape is because this is a numbers and film podcast. This is an analytically driven trade. There's a lot of interesting reasons about like why this happened. 
But there is a personnel side of this of why this happened as well. So Mary Kay, I want to start off the top. I have two things I want to get from you off the top. One is just when this went down, were you like, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Or were you more like, did you feel like the general reaction was more like, what are they doing? They need a quarterback. Why are they trading the number two pick in the draft? Well, my first reaction was, what are they doing? They need a a quarterback. And why are they trading the number two pick in the draft for this quarterback? Because I had gone to the Senior Bowl that year. And not only did I watch uh, Carson Wentz at the Senior Bowl, I really liked a lot of what I saw about him there. Uh, But I spent a lot of time talking to him, talking to coaches, talking to personnel people. And it just seemed like he was almost a can't miss prospect that he should be able to come into the league and win games right away and be really good for a long period of time. So I think, and it's not that I don't love uh, acquiring assets, acquiring draft picks. I understand the analytics of that. I really do. And I have no problem with that sort of thing, but in this case, it's not easy to end up usually now in the Browns case, they, always end up with a top pick, but it's usually not easy to get the number one or number two pick and get your hands on uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the draft. And that's why the Eagles were like, we'll give up the farm uh, because it's that hard uh, to achieve this. So my first reaction was no, 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 do not do this. Uh, This is dumb. You need the quarterback. And so the second part of this, and and I actually want to get Ellis on this too, before we go back to Scott to sort of hammer out some more of the structure here, Mary Kay, do you, if they would have thought that Carson Wentz is the next Aaron Rodgers, is the next Russell Wilson, would they have kept the pick? Like if they were like, no, there's a, this is a can't miss quarterback prospect here. How did, how did their personal evaluation of Carson Wentz, influenced the fact that they did go ahead and make the deal. That was huge. That was a large, large part of of it for them. They did not believe that he was that can't miss prospect. They didn't believe it. And, uh, and to this day, I I think they still feel that way. And obviously the season that he's having right now kind of confirms at least in this moment in time, what they were thinking back then, but that was absolutely 100% it. And we know that because uh, Paul D. Podesta uh, later said in the, you know, I think in the year after that, that, uh, that he did not think that Carson Wentz was a top 20 quarterback. All right. So Ellis, I just want your take on this generally, because you were not covering the team uh, at this time, you were in, uh, I believe, seventh grade when this trade went down, if I have your age <laughs> correct in my head. The, oh. I- the idea of this, Ellis, from an analytical roster building, new GM team that is down in the dumps and is trying to restructure, does this does it make sense as a, as a trade idea to you, Ellis? And how much would it factor in of if there's a quarterback that you loved at two Analytics aside, do you have to take that guy or would it, would it even make sense of, you know what, we like this guy, but we're trying to accumulate picks and build. What do you think about the general sort of style of thinking around this when you're thinking franchise quarterback versus trying to build an entire roster? Before I answer that first, I just want to say, Mary Kay, welcome to Gotta Watch the Tape. It's great to have you here. Thank you for making an appearance. We'll get, your, we'll get your t-shirt size, Mary Kay, and we'll send you the Gotta Watch the Tape t-shirt when we yeah. get the swag going. Yeah, we got, we got the merch coming soon. Um, no, Doug, it's a great question. First, let's just quickly address the drafting your guy. If you 
you know, front office has done their homework, done their due diligence and falls in love with a, a prospect, especially as a prospect as important as the quarterback position, you go get them. And of course the number two pick is the perfect spot to just go get your guy. There's only one team picking ahead of you. Chances are you're going to get your guy. You draft him. with that not being the case. What Scott said in theory, the, 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 the idea of having as many swings or throws at a dartboard when you're drafting, regardless of position, you know, first round picks are only 50% chance of hitting and, you know, it gets worse as you go down uh, in a draft. That makes great sense in theory, have as many swings as possible. The issue is the application of it. When a front office doesn't, is not in sync with the coaching staff, as in what our identity is, I believe that makes it double as hard to then identify the players you should be drafting. So that becomes, I think, the the most problematic thing with the Browns regime over this, let's just say, I don't know, five years, decade, you really can stretch it as far as you want with the issues the Browns have had, the disconnect between a front office and a head coach is you are draft. You don't really know what your identity is as a, as a team on both on either offense or defense. And then you don't necessarily know who to draft. And that's how you end up selecting a guy like David Njoku in the first round because you're just looking at his spark score and who he is as an athlete and his highlight plays and not thinking, okay, how is he going to work in the system of this offense? And for the Browns, they've already proven in one year that fit matters so much. Just going down their draft this year, Jedrick Wills, wide zone. Grant Delpit, of course, hasn't played it down, but just in his absence, we've seen how much he would have played this year and probably made a difference in, in playing those, those key snaps and being the free safety this team needs. Uh, this team's built up front on the D-line with Jordan Elliott, even though he's not having the best year. That's the type of player they're looking for. Same with Jacob Phillips. They're going to look for those rangy type of linebackers. Harrison Bryant's having a great year because of a, a, a specific fit and so on and so forth. So you can I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, it's great to have a lot of cracks at it, but you need to be in sync with your your head coach, your defensive coordinator before you make those picks. And I don't think the Browns have had that until this year with Kevin Stefanski, Andrew Barry and Joe Woods. So there's a couple things you can't get away from in the discussion of this. And that's one of them that it's like there's the idea and there's the execution. I want to get back to the idea of it with this, Scott, the way you laid it out at the start. The idea of it, especially for a franchise that hadn't been very good for a new GM who's trying to start something is the idea of turning one pick into 12 picks is, was that right? Was that good? And again, you know, I mean, if you, if you pick 12 all pros with the 12 picks then of course it's right, but just that was the thought process maybe on point with where the Browns were, or was it, no, you should have taken the franchise quarterback first. If you had the chance. I think it's on point with their, with the way they went through, the process of thinking about this. And by that, I mean, all right, they determined that Wentz wasn't the guy that they wanted. So you can't draft a quarterback and then tear everything down around him and try to build it back up because by the time you do get it built back up, then that quarterback has either been, you know, run through the ringer the way maybe Tim couch was, or he is no longer the cheap asset and you have to decide you have to pay this guy based on probably really bad years playing on a really bad team. So they didn't want to have the quarterback and place him in the middle of this rebuild. So from that point, it makes sense to turn that pick into a bunch of picks. And the other thing, which wasn't said in the beginning, but De Podesta said it a year or two later about how the plan was to tear it down to the studs, meaning we were going to make this team that was not capable of winning. And with that thinking, you're, you're going into this, all right, this number two pick that we're trading away is not going to be the last high pick we're going to have. 
this plan is going to give us more high picks. And that's what ended up happening there is you got two number one picks in a row after that. So the losing part of this is also, it was like the unspoken part of it that everybody kind of knew what was happening, but nobody really said it until, you know, Dee Podesta kind of came out and, and, and had the quote about tearing it down to the studs. So Scott, you are going to go through sort of who they ended up with here, which again, you have to deal with what actually happened. You can't only deal with the theoretical, but while we have Mary Kay here, I like to bring up things at times where now we're looking back and it's like, Mary Kay, remember the thing you said in the moment that turned probably out to be correct. Remember how you were right at the time. The thing about this Mary Kay is, and, and Scott will lay it out, but you always thought they needed more football people in the decision-making process. Here's the idea of get all the picks. Right. But then when it was Sashi in charge of making the picks, would you, would you agree with the idea of get all the picks was kind of okay? It was make the picks where it fell apart. And what would you have done to maybe give this a better chance of succeeding on the execution end, not just the accumulation end? Okay, great. Um, yes, and I, I'm going to try to uh, give you uh, my answer, and then again, I'm going to have to scoot out here to go to practice, but I 100% appreciate and embrace, like I said, uh, the model of gathering assets and picks, uh, but and, and I wrote a column back then about it and it ruffled a lot of feathers that I felt that they needed a football, like a, a football kind of guy or a strong personnel man to make those picks and to execute all of this. And that didn't happen. And therefore, uh, you know, that's why uh, I actually think it's revisionist history that they were trying to tear it down to the studs. I think that little phrase came after they screwed up all these picks and it was just easier to say, oh, we meant to do that. So She's got a sheet. She's got a sheet. She's got a sheet of all the screwed up picks and she has highlighted them. (laughs) I I had this from back, back then when they made, when they drafted. Uh, But I mean, these are the guys they drafted Corey Coleman, Sean Coleman, Cody Kessler. This is just in the first iteration. Uh, Ricardo Lewis, Derek Kinder and Jordan Payton, Spencer Drango. They're, they're pretty much all out of football. Uh, They, that year they could have had Carson Wentz and Michael Thomas. So my thought was, you know, Draft Carson Wentz and Michael Thomas, and off you go. Now, Carson Wentz is struggling this year. But before he got so beat up in his career in terms of injury after injury after concussion and everything else, he was a pretty darn good quarterback. And they got a Super Bowl, I think, out of it because of him. So they got a Super Bowl out of it. It worked. That worked out okay for them. And as we go forward, we'll know uh, how the rest of this sort of turned out in terms of the final analysis of it all. But when you fast forward to the next year, the Browns could have salvaged the whole thing by just drafting Deshaun Watson after after Miles Garrett in that first round. But that's where they. That's once again where. And, and I'm not talking about it. It doesn't have to be old school Neanderthal football guy versus Harvard educated analytics guy. I never thought that. I never believed that was true. Now I think they kind of have it right. You, you, you blend really good, strong personnel people with analytics. There's a, a, a great mix. There's a sweet spot that you can find. They didn't have it then. They didn't have it. Andrew Berry was too young, wasn't ready to be put in charge of all this. So they get to that next year and they trade away that 12th pick. Somebody should have known that Deshaun Watson was going to be really good. Somebody should have also known that Patrick Mahomes was going to be really good, but that is a conversation for another day. 
but they could have salvaged this whole thing by ending up with Miles and Deshaun, but they traded away Deshaun uh, to the to the Texans, and then it just became one thing after another. The two quarterbacks that they tried to win with in those years that came out of this trade were Cody Kessler and Deshaun Kaiser. Neither are in football right now, although Deshaun is trying to get a tri- uh, trying to get on the practice squad of the Bears right now. So yes, in theory, the idea was phenomenal. I mean, they did a masterful job. I mean, this is the trade that keeps on giving. I mean, Jordan, Jordan Elliott came from this trade. I'm sure Scott will have some of that later. But I mean, Jordan Elliott, if you just keep going and going and going, it's a trade that goes on in perpetuity. Um, but uh, they just didn't execute it properly at the time. And it's a shame because it should be hailed as the trade of a century. And they could have, John Dorsey would have traded the fourth pick that he used on Denzel Ward and would have traded down a couple spots and would have done the Buffalo, you know, a Buffalo trade to get Buffalo to move up to four to take Josh Allen instead of where Buffalo went to seven to get him. You had opportunities to make it in perpetuity. I wrote it, just have an extra first round pick forever based on this. So I do think in the end, and I think part of what you're saying, Mary Kay, is you can go through the opportunities and say, well, if they just would have taken this guy and this guy later instead of this guy and this guy. I think it's almost indisputable that this initial trade, the trade to trade down from two to start this. Yeah. I think almost indisputable that it was the right move because part of what you're laying out is. Well, here's all the things that opened up and it did open a lot of things. But if you just take Carson Wentz and it's like, that's it. If he's great, we're great. If he's not great, that's it. That's the only asset that changes a lot of things too. And by the way, if Carson Wentz was having the season he's having right now with the Browns, there'd be a lot of people pulling their hair out right now, just like people are pulling their hair out with Baker Mayfield. And again, if you were wearing a Super Bowl ring while you were pulling your hair out, that right. changes everything, right. but there's a lot that goes into it. And we are going to have to let you go at some point, Mary Kay, I think in the end. So, and we'll get into a little more of the execution and you do bring up good points, but in the end, if the, if they would have either had the right people or sometimes it's luck, maybe Sashi's still the guy, but I don't know, instead of taking a flyer on Cody Kessler, listen, they took Cody Kessler in the third round of that draft. Mm-hmm. You know who went in the fourth round? Dak Prescott. If they take Dak Prescott instead of Cody Kessler, how much different do you view this? Right. But in the end, the idea with where the Browns were as a franchise, the idea of it, you, you are okay with the idea of it if they just would have been better able to use the picks they winded up getting. Yes, I would have been way, way more okay with it if they hadn't done all of this. And that was the only problem that, that I really had with the whole thing. Although I did think that Carson Wentz and Michael Thomas could have been game changers for you. I really think that if you, if you kind of started your offense and built around those two guys, because sometimes if you get a good quarterback and receiver combo, it's dynamite. I mean, that's why the Browns went 10 and six, the Derek Anderson, Braylon Edwards year. Remember that Scott, Scott, basically, because those guys connected for 16 touchdown passes and when you are scoring the football that much you're going to win a lot of football games so I do think Carson Wentz and Michael Thomas I I would have been happy with that Um, but I I do understand I mean I do agree with what you're saying that in theory if you were going to turn this into a boatload of picks the way that they did 
it should have been brilliant, genius, masterful, but they just didn't execute it. So I'm just going to clip out the part there and we'll put it on Twitter <laughs> and encourage people to listen there. I'm just going to put as a tag, Mary Kay Cabot calls Sashi Brown a genius. That's the part. That's all I took away That's from the that. The rest of it, I, I didn't hear. I only caught Sashi at the very beginning and genius <laughs> at the end. The rest was just static. I'm kidding. I mean, there's every now and then, and, and I, you know, we go back and you go through the tenure of Brown's GMs and say, good pick, bad pick, good pick, bad pick. You know, John Dorsey, Austin Corbett, bad. Nick Chubb, good, right? We all do that. Right. I would not mind going back through the lineage of Mary Kay Cabot advice on the Browns beat <laughs> because I have a feeling, you know, you're not 100% Mary Kay, but I think I would stack you up with any GM who has been through town of like, hey, you know, instead of Johnny Manziel, Mary Kay would have taken Derek Carr. You know, like instead of this guy, Mary Kay would have taken that guy. And it's like, you know what? I think I'll take Mary Kay's batting average instead there. Um, all right, Mary Kay, this is the issue. See, we just get on here and we just yammer about film or whatever. And we're like, we don't have to go to practice. We don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to write the news. Practice. So, yeah. So we'll let you go carry the beat, Mary Kay, and we'll continue pontificating about this trade. But thanks for making time to join us here on Gotta Watch the Tape. Sure. It was fun. Let's do it again. We'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. All right. We're going to keep rolling with Scott Patsko. And to outline this, would it make sense here now, Scott, in this moment to go through some of the guys? And I don't know how much we want to play, you know, who's the guy that could have taken? Because, again, yeah. and there are specific things. I mean, in the end, even from like an analytical standpoint, the idea, and I don't know like if Corey Coleman is an analytical pick or not, it was a bad pick. It was a tough receiver draft that year. They wound up, they were, a, what they wound up doing here was not trading down once, but twice. And then I'm sure you'll, you know, you'll cover this. One of the other guys that they didn't take that they could have, they wound up getting on the backside anyway, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they were a, a receiver needy team that wound up picking the first receiver in the draft. They were in the middle of the first round when all this was done. They could have taken any receiver. It was a weird year. Corey Coleman, Josh Doxson, Laquan Treadwell, like a lot of like kind of iffy guys. And Michael Thomas was sitting there, but the whole league passed on Michael Thomas because he didn't go into the second round. And there are things here, as Mary Kay said, if you take this guy, this guy, this guy, all of a sudden you're a genius. But I do think we have to keep, and I think it's what we want to do here a little bit. We just want to talk about the assets a little bit. So maybe you can run through the assets they wound up with here. And then Ellis will come in a little bit more and we'll talk about how maybe they did not use the assets as ultimately as they could have. All right. So a couple of years ago, I created this Carson Wentz trade tracker to kind of follow this deal as it went through and all the picks were made and in 2018, the last pick that was directly tied to this was made, and that was uh, Antonio Callaway. It was a pick that they actually uh, had dealt uh, from a trade that they had done with the Colts. 105th pick, sixth round, Antonio Callaway. At that point, I put the trade tracker away. I put it in the garage. So this week, I went out there, and I tried to fire it up. You know, it took a few pulls, but I got it going, and I figured, let's keep this trade tracker going and look at these deals through today. So any player who let – who who led to an asset in return kind of kept that trade alive. Any player who ultimately was released or waived by the Browns kind of created a dead end for the tracker. So at this point, we can go, we can go through it like this. At this point, 18 Browns players have had ties to this trade. And of those 18 players, eight 
have been released or waived. And this is a list that includes Derek Kindred, Spencer Drango, Ricardo Lewis, Jordan Payton, Chad Thomas, Antonio Callaway, Austin Seibert tied to this, Donnie Lewis Jr. tied to this. All those players have been released or waived and are no longer part of this. They didn't bring anything in return. Six players were traded away. So that's Corey Coleman, Sean Coleman, Cody Kessler. I mean, the fact that they were able to trade Cody Kessler for something, I think, is a victory in itself. Deshaun Kaiser, same deal. Um, Jabril Peppers and Jannard Avery also is tied for this. And we'll get back to Jannard Avery because he's got a special place in this. Two players were allowed to leave in free agency. One was Demarius Randall, who, of course, came in the Kaiser deal, and Justin McRae, who was here just for a cup of coffee. But who started like three games last year when they were supposed to go 12 and four. I My know. God, I like revisiting things of like, remember when they were trying to win last year with guys like that? Not that Justin McRae is not a fine fella, but my God, they were trying to win. Go ahead. He was so close to being the whole key to this thing, right? Uh, and then there's two guys who are still on the team. One is Denzel Ward and the other, the other I'm, I'm kind of iffy even bringing up, it's weird, but Odell Beckham Jr. is tied to this because Jabril Preppers was traded for him. I don't think that is weird at all. I think there is a super compelling case that if you don't start, if you don't trade this number two pick at the start of this, you don't wind up with Odell Beckham. I think that's, I think that's completely fair, isn't it? Oh yeah. But I mean, I'd say that because there was two other picks involved in that deal. I, I, I don't like Vernon and Zeitler. I know they got lumped in and it became one big trade for paperwork or whatever, but that's separate from this. You, you traded Peppers, a first rounder and like a, what was it? A third rounder, like two picks plus peppers for Odell. So maybe it was like a third of Odell, like his I, arm I, and his leg. And listen, I don't know. Watch. So Gettleman, everybody said at the time that Gettleman wanted two first rounders for right. Odell. And that in the end, he viewed peppers as a first rounder. So that what the Browns ended up giving up was their first round pick in the middle of that draft and peppers. And that got it done. But the whole brilliant part of that is that Gettleman's taking it as a first rounder. And he can tell people, hey, everybody in New York, I got two first rounders. This safety, he's a young safety. He was a first rounder. But that was a safety. That was like a, a, a triple trade down first round pick by the Browns. That that was not only a trade down from Wentz, it's a trade down from Watson. It's a trade. It's a million times trade down that it's sort of the, the individual pick for the Browns has its value lessened because – it came from something else, but when you then give it to someone else, it has full value again, right? That, that peppers was the 25th pick or whatever, because they traded down from 12 and got the extra first rounder. So I, that's like brilliant usage of assets. So I'm glad you, you have to bring that up and people have to understand that because if you didn't have that, if you didn't have peppers, what the Browns would have had to do was trade, their first rounder that year and a future first rounder. And you know who the future first rounder would have been Jedrick Wills. So who would you rather trade for Odell Beckham? The first rounder then and peppers or the first rounder then, and the guy who became Wills, because it was going to take two first round picks to get that done. So like, that's how you have to think about this. The asset management is brilliant. The player picking is you're going through it right now. Well, it was also going to take a GM who was going to consider Jabril Peppers as the equivalent of a first-round pick at that point in his career. That, that kind there, of helped you. 
as I, I keep one of my foundational principles in life is there are dumb people everywhere. So you <laughs> go ahead and do it. You'll find somebody who believes it. And it's, listen, it's not, I mean, Jabril Peppers isn't, isn't Ed Reed, but he's a, he's a fine NFL player. He's an okay NFL player. That wasn't like a complete whiff there or anything. So yeah, keep going. So I guess asset wise today, what the Browns have to show for this trade is Denzel Ward. We can put Beckham on there. But then there's also a draft pick still sitting out there that is tied to this because of the deal for Gennard Avery in 2019. They traded him to the Eagles of all teams. And so the Browns have their fourth rounder next season. So that is letting this trade kind of live on in draft pick form. Uh, So we'll probably still be talking about this next year. (laughs) Good. Are you, by the way, are you getting some search engine traffic on this Carson Wentz headline this week? Did you notice? Is it popping back up? I, I haven't checked that yet, but I need to. Yeah. Because that, so if you guys want to Google this, if you, if you want to look it up, the headline on cleveland.com, Carson Wentz trade tracker, the Browns finally completed their end of the deal, which again is not 1000% accurate because we have this fourth rounder out here, but it is fascinating to look at Scott. So the two players that the Eagles got from this deal, of course, one is Carson Wentz. The other, uh, they had a fourth rounder from the Browns, which they traded to the Vikings to move up seven spots to draft running back Donnell Pumphrey who was waived in 2019 without ever playing a game. So basically they came out of this with Carson Wentz and that's it. I don't know before we talk about who won and who lost, cause I got another way of, uh, of comparing what each team has. I mean, really, if you want to look at what was, what the Browns got directly from this deal, it's Denzel Ward. And, and that's it. You don't draft players to trade them. So if you're just talking about picks that created players that the Browns, ended up drafting Denzel Ward is the beginning and the end of that list. As far as people who are still on this roster, everybody else has come and gone. So Denzel Ward and Carson Wentz, is that, you know, well, well uh, but, I, but I think, cause if, listen, if they had not done the Odell trade, Jabril Peppers would be a starting safety on this team right now. And is, and is, I don't know what, I don't know how good Jabril Peppers is. Cause I don't care, but I bet you he's better than Andrews and Deho. Yeah. He's better than anything the Browns have right now. So he would be a starting safety. So you'd say, okay, we have Ward and a starting safety, right? So, and that's, that's one of those things that, and this is, this is a little bit of the brilliance of the thing. If the picks are great, then the picks are great. And nobody argues that you win. Cause it's like, look, we made all these great picks. I almost think that the fact that they missed on the picks on so many of the picks is almost a reverse argument for why you make trades like this also, which is like drafting is hard. Drafting is inexact. The more swings you get, the better. Look, we got 12 swings and we only got one guy out of it. If we only would have had nine swings, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it almost hammers home the point by how many misses there are. And the other part that is very difficult, and there's a part that I, I strongly disagree with Mary Kay on, and I would say it to her face if she didn't have to go do her job. I'm not trying to say it behind her back. <laughs> And I will get to that in a second. But part of the idea is I do believe that taking quarterbacks in the top 10 is the way to go. Find the guy that you believe in and take him. But every time you say, well, they could have had Dak in the fourth round or they could have had this other guy. Like the idea that I think this is I think this is 100 percent true. And Ellis, I want to see if you agree with this. Carson Wentz was not a got to take guy. And frankly, I'm not even sure how many quarterbacks would rise to that 
level, right? Because Patrick Mahomes would, right? Maybe Kyler Murray, but like there's there are there's always another corner, another quarterback around the corner. And the thing that I always said about the Browns here is that they were not going to get to the end of a rebuild and forget to take a quarterback. So at some point they were going to take a quarterback. And if your belief was we're going to take a quarterback, this guy's not it. I, I think that part of the equation, as we get ready for the Browns and Eagles on Sunday, Ellis, I think that is true. That Carson Wentz was not a sell the farm, pass up everything else. If you pass on this guy, you will rue the day. He's, he wasn't that kind of special quarterback. And on that, I think they were indisputably correct. Yeah. First of all, can you guys hear me? Okay. Is my connection fine? Yeah. Okay. We, we just haven't been calling on you very much. No, it's, no. I, it's like, Ellis is like, <laughs> I haven't talked very much. My microphone must be broken. No, I no. I, as much as I do enjoy talking, I cannot, I have my web browsers are telling me that I'm not connected to the internet yet. I can still hear everything you guys are saying. So I do not know what's going on here. Shout out zoom for keeping this connection going. Um, but yeah, so Carson Wentz, uh, North Dakota state, being from Minnesota, got a handful of friends who go there. Uh, one of my old basketball coaches is from there. So that neck of the woods believed in Carson Wentz, but I understand the national narrative about that. And it was not a pick where you pass on and you're going to get, you know, hammered in the media or in the press or anything like that. And there was still, you just- did, they got hammered. Scott, didn't they get hammered? Everybody thought they were crazy for making this trade. They oh, did yeah. get hammered. Okay. Well, well, Doug, I was in seventh grade when this happened. So, <laughs> You were doing your midterm book report on the yeah. Carson Wentz trade in yeah. English class. Exactly. My, my point is this, when it comes to making a, a pick like that, you, as I said earlier, you either feel a hundred percent on it. You feel like it's a home run or you, you can get out of it. And I, cause my, I can make that point this way. An interesting nugget. I don't think a lot of people are aware of with the, the Dak Prescott pick. Like, you know, we act like the Cowboys just fell into Dak in the fourth round uh, the story behind that is that the the Dallas Cowboys coaching staff coached at the Senior Bowl that year. Dak Prescott was there, and you as when you get to coach the, the one of the teams, you get extensive time with everyone on that roster. So the, the Cowboys coaching staff got you know really inside information on Prescott, got to work with him for an entire week and see the type of kid he was, which made them comfortable drafting him in that spot. So they they knew he was there and they knew they could wait because he wasn't getting that sort of round one, round two buzz. So it. it if a team passes on a guy like that, and the same could be true for Deshaun Watson, like they're, they're at some point in the evaluation process, someone missed, but they miss because the Intel is not either. They're just not getting it or they don't trust it. So that's where I think teams move off these guys. It's not like they're just like, Oh, you know, he's going to be great, but we'd rather have the picks. They, they, they just don't, their Intel is wrong in that case. But the process, which I think is important to remember is how they land on that Intel and the Browns clearly didn't have it for, for, for this draft, the Watson draft, or finding a guy like Prescott either. I do think – and also I think it's been reported that, like, the Cowboys like Paxton Lynch in that draft. And right. And they got, yeah, they got some bullets. You're 100% right. It, Denver it's, takes him the end of the first round, so they can't. So they end up having to wait for Dak yep. in the fourth round. And by the way, again, like giving credit to Cleveland.com people who are smart, you know who loved Dak Prescott and I thought he was crazy? Chris Fedor. Chris Fedor was all over Dak Prescott. And I was like, whatever, dude, Mississippi State, give me a break, Fedor. And I was like, oh, yeah, you were completely right. Yeah. So I do think there is 
there are two schools of thought here. And I think the Browns did try to live in throwing darts at like late first round quarterbacks for a long time. And it never worked. It never worked with Brandon Whedon and Johnny Manziel. And when Brady Quinn fell and Colt McCoy in the third round. And I thought at some point that was a mistake. I want them at some point to go get your guy, identify your guy and go get him at some point. Right. Don't take who falls. Don't take, well, we like four guys. We'll, we'll take whoever's left, right? Go get your guy. But the thing that I absolutely think is true is that this was a plan. The idea that you didn't think that, that if Mary Kay says she doesn't think they were trying to lose, I think absolutely they were trying to lose. And knowing they were going to stink for multiple years, they knew they were going to end up taking a quarterback in the first round at some point, just like they did. So again, we can debate whether Baker, whether Baker Mayfield was the right pick, whether they should have, you know, not taken Deshaun Watson to end up with Baker Mayfield. They ended up taking a quarterback number one in the draft. And they are building now, they are built around a defensive end taken at number one and a quarterback taken at number one. And so from that standpoint, and by the way, they took a cornerback at number four who they wouldn't have been able to take unless they'd done all this stuff. So the, the idea of it, I absolutely think it was a plan they tanked they would never say it but they tanked they did and i wish they would have said it more in the moment and asked people to ride along with them and told them there is a payoff at the end i I will say this you don't have to go one and 31 to make the playoffs you don't have to do it that way but it is the way the browns went about it and we are talking about a team that we think are going to make the playoff that we think is going to make the playoffs and we would not be talking about them if they hadn't gone one and 31, I don't think. Right. That, or, or that at the very least, it kind of worked. It did kind of work. It could have, maybe you could have done it another way, but the way they did it, I think worked. I think we have to acknowledge that Scott. I think where the failure came is, or number one, yeah, they wanted to lose and they wanted to keep getting some high draft picks for a couple of years, but where they failed with this plan was that, they came out of that 2016 draft with almost nothing. They had 14 picks in that draft. They had nine picks in the first four rounds. They came away with one impact player, and that was Joe Schobert. And really, over the, over the next two drafts, you know, I mean, they got Joby and Garrett and, and Peppers in the next draft, but that's 24 picks. And you're coming out of those 24 picks with four players, I think, really put them in a bad spot because ideally – yeah, you suck for a couple of years, but you also get some young players who develop into the core of the team, and that just didn't happen. All those players from 2016, with the exception of, of Schobert, and I don't really count Higgins. He's a backup, and that's not me saying that. That's the NFL saying that and yeah. multiple coaching staff saying that. Um, Schobert is really, he's the only guy there that really, I mean, one really good year out of him has, has been pretty much the, the high watermark. But Maybe we should try to get into to ultimately answering this because, I mean, it's been it hasn't been five years, but it's been we're in the fifth season. We're in the middle of the fifth season, so like we should know by now definitively one way or the other. And, and also, I want to note that obviously the Eagles and the Browns were not the only teams involved in this. You also have Titans, the Panthers, the Raiders, the Texans, and the Colts who all swung deals with the Browns for picks that they got from the Eagles. So all those teams there those five teams, they had seven players were drafted by those five teams. Only two Deshaun Watson and Colts defensive end Tyquan Lewis are still with the original teams. 
two players the Titans drafted, Jack Conklin and Andy Janovich, are with the Browns now. Of all that just worked out weird. So it's like none of those other teams really, and I didn't track what happened to those players, but the fact that five years later, only two of those players are still with the original team, I think tells you that things didn't work out as great for those teams as they had hoped either. But as I said before, you got Ward, Beckham, and that 2021 fourth rounder on the Brown side of the ledger. And then you got Carson Wentz, who for the record has won Pro Bowl. He is 35, 29, and 1 as a starter, which is 53%. And he's 0 for 1 in the playoffs. That, that's Carson Wentz if you want to maybe balance him against what the Browns have right now. So even though I'm, I'm, it might sound like I'm going to say the Browns won this, I still think it's tied because both teams got what they wanted, right? The Browns collected assets. They avoided drafting a quarterback and putting him in an early win situation. They just didn't hit on enough draft picks. The Eagles got what they wanted in Carson Wentz. They won a Super Bowl in the last five years, but I don't put that on Wentz's resume because there's no telling how he would have performed in the playoffs that year. So I think, I think it's a tie. It might not be what Browns fans want to hear, but I think it's a tie. And like not a tie because they both get A's, right? A tie because they both get like weird like C pluses or something. It's, I'll tell you what. The idea that Carson Wentz was a quarterback during a regular season in which they went 13-3 and three, but then got hurt and wasn't around for the playoffs and they won without him makes it very hard to evaluate this because it's it 11 is, games that year. It is really hard because it's like they won the Super Bowl, but did they win it because of him? No, but he did play well in the regular season and they were really good in the regular season. It wasn't a fluke Super Bowl. It was more like a miracle Super Bowl that they won without their starting quarterback, but which all, which also goes to, the credit they get for building a strong roster around him. That is the most complicating thing of this, Scott. But in the end, I mean, again, if you, if you said to Browns fans, the thing, I, I guess the hard part of this is, do you believe Scott that if the, would the Eagles have won the Super Bowl if they had not made this trade? If the Eagles had, if the Browns had picked Carson Wentz, would the Eagles have won the Super Bowl that year? Oh my goodness. Who was the Eagles quarterback before that? I, they just have had Nick Foles start the whole year, and then he's your yeah. quarterback. I mean, they had Sam Bradford, and they trade Sam Bradford right before the season starts because Carson Wentz has played right. so, so well in the preseason, and everybody thought that Wentz was going to be the backup to Bradford for like a half a year or a year, and then they were like, nope, the heck with it, go. And they actually got assets back because they traded Bradford to the Vikings. Look, I'm giving, I'm giving Ellis Sam Bradford Vikings flashbacks. Because Teddy, right? Was it Bridgewater got hurt for the Vikings? They were desperate. They trade a first-round pick. Yep. So the Eagles recoup a first-rounder by trading Bradford, which actually works out for them. And again, it's all about roster building. It's very convoluted. But maybe the Eagles, with everything they had as a franchise, would have won the Super Bowl without Carson Wentz. But if you said to a Browns fan, if you believe that the Eagles would not win a Super Bowl without Carson Wentz, and then you say to Browns fans, well, which side would you rather have? The side with a Super Bowl ring or the side that doesn't have a Super Bowl ring? You take the Super Bowl ring a thousand times out of a thousand. So in that Yeah, way, but you're assuming that Wentz was, was the reason, though. And that's why it's complicated. Because if he had been the quarterback the whole year and had been on the field in the Super Bowl, there'd be no doubt about it. The Eagles won. Because you have the ring. Browns fans want that ring. But I don't know how much credit he actually deserves for that. It's really hard. Well, here's the other thing. The, the Browns' plan got kind of ripped up and rerouted halfway through. You know, if, if Sashi Brown 
is still here in 2018 and they hire Kevin Stefanski, say for year three or even year four at that point, a year early. And they get, they, they still get the quarterback when they got the quarterback. If those things kind of fall in place for them, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of look at this as the first two years of the plan happened and then everything got messed up and people got fired and they changed GMs and they had to, keep Hugh Jackson for another year to prove whether or not he was really a good coach or if it was all just being put in a bad situation and everything just kind of went off course. So that too, I think gets complicated the same way the Eagles got complicated in terms of what once his contribution to that Super Bowl was, which again, I think leads this to kind of a tie because ultimately at the end of the, at the end of the day, the Browns kind of got to where they were trying to get to. They just didn't take the, exact route maybe they had planned out when Sashi Brown first came on board. It's really hard. And I, it, it is, this is, it's a brilliant strategy. Part of the other thing that I think you have to have to make this kind of thing work is patience. That if you, if you're going to say, Hey, we're going to let you trade. Oh, you want to trade the number two pick in the draft. What are you going to get for it? Are you going to get 18 picks over the next four years? Right? Well, you have to have some patience to let that play out or what are you doing? So, and they kind of, and they didn't, they did not let, they let Sashi make the deal, but then they didn't let Sashi hire the coach he wanted to hire. Right. So like that, that's part of the, the issue. And they let Sashi make the first trade, but they didn't let him finish off executing it all the way through. And I guarantee Sashi would have traded the fourth pick that was Denzel Ward. And maybe you get Denzel Ward at nine. When you trade down, I don't know. People didn't think Denzel Ward was going fourth and you get an extra first rounder and now you stack it, but now you give it to a guy. Dorsey's a go for it guy. And again, I think there are aspects of it that kind of, it actually worked out to have a long-term guy replaced by a go for it guy. I think there was some good to Dorsey too, but there's a lot of things in place that we only got half an answer on any of it. We really only got half an answer on any of it, but it's also a brilliant thing. I mean, if I said to, to the bosses at cleveland.com, listen, I got this whole plan. We're going to revolutionize podcasting, but you've just got to give me five years to struggle and do whatever I want. Don't evaluate me for five years. Pay me, pay me, but don't think about firing me. And after five years, we'll see where we are. That is a heck of a way to tell your bosses how you're going to operate. So I understand like, listen, Sasha, you don't get carte blanche forever but they did cut them off short and i wrote at the time they cut them off short so it's really hard to evaluate but i think if you want to call the the trade a tie scott i think that's fair i think in the end and there might be people who are listening to this who disagree but i don't know that there are i think the idea of the trade was right and that if Carson Wentz was Patrick Mahomes and you say you passed on Patrick Mahomes, it would be different. He's not. And if Mary Kay is saying, hey, look what he was in 2017 and then he got hurt. Again, there are other people who will say 2017 was the outlier. He's got to lose, take away 2017, which again, you can't do. It's like we say, take it away Nick Chubb's 80 yard run. It's like, oh, take away Carson Wentz's Super Bowl run and he's not that good. It's like he, he let a Super Bowl run, but he has a losing record the other four years combined. He's in year five. He's not getting better. He's not getting better. He's at the best. He's plateaued. He's probably gotten worse. The, the Browns, can you imagine, Ellis, if he was coming in here right now as the best quarterback in the NFL, it's like, here comes the guy the Browns passed on. 
<sighs> We'd be having a very different podcast this week. Nobody thinks that. Ellis, what is Carson Wentz? The 21st best quarterback in the NFL? The 26th? The 18th? He sure as heck is not in the top half right now. Well, it's it, that question is as, as complicated as evaluating this trade and picking a winner because it's just so murky right now. Is it the play calling that's the problem in Philly? Is it design? Is it a beat-up offensive line? Is it a lack of playmakers on the outside? The excuse train in Philly is is everywhere. And a lot of the blame does land on Carson because at the end of the day, you're the one throwing the football and completing only 56% of your passes. So it, it's a tough evaluation of Carson Wentz right now, but you're right. He's not coming in here as a world beater and reminding all Browns fans that that could have been our guy. It's actually funny. I think that Browns fans dodged two bullets in back-to-back weeks, seeing what Deshaun Watson is and being like, well, that could be our quarterback, but Hey, the organization sucks. At least, you know, they're a mess. It's not going to scar us in the AFC. And now Wentz comes to town and he's damaged goods as well. So both those ways, you don't, you don't really feel um, a longing for those two quarterbacks to be in Cleveland because it's a messy situation in both spots for these young quarterbacks right now. I do think in the end that I think my final point on all this analytical stuff is if you put principles and processes in place, if you establish them and you stick to them, and some of those things are accumulating draft assets, deciding how much money you want to spend on certain positions in roster building, deciding which positions you emphasize in the draft based on value and that kind of thing. I think if you set those up and you stick with them and you have patience, I think over like a 10 year period, you're going to win. I, I really do. And I think if this is, if that's what this is, if you get a decade of Andrew Barry and he has football acumen, he has some football people around him, but he has principles and processes and priorities. That's a lot of peas, but that's, that I have a Sashi Brown shirt, principles, processes, priorities, and you stick to that for 10 years, they're going to win. And this came up again when the, when Terrell Pryor had that great one year as a Brown, and then they were trying to resign him. And I think they were a little bit ships passing in the night and, and they did not end up keeping Terrell Pryor. And I think there was a number where they were like, listen, we'll offer you this, but we're not going more than that. And then Terrell Pryor left. And there were some people who were like, oh my God, I can't believe they're losing Terrell Pryor. And it's like, well, they're just not going over a certain number for a guy like that at that position. And what did Terrell Pryor ever do the rest of his career? They don't miss Terrell Pryor, right? So you stick to some things. And then, you know, maybe every now and then you make some exceptions. But I do think if this is the result, Sashi died so Andrew Barry could live, right? I mean, if this is where we are, I think we're heading down a road where I think they're Scott. Do you think, and we're going long on this. It's, it's Sashi talk. Come on, man. For real. Are we serious? We're doing, a, never we're, doing we're doing a numbers podcast and we're like in the 17th episode and I'm finally getting to have a little Sashi time. I think mm-hmm. I can go long a little Sashi time for Dougie boy. Is there, I think there might be another trade like this out there for the Browns, right? I think there might be another day where, you know, Fingers crossed for Browns fans. They're not picking second in any draft coming up soon. But if this is how you go about your business, I know people trading down got a bad rap in Cleveland because people were sick of it and they saw all the great players they didn't take. There are some principles at play here that if you believe in draft accumulation and you believe in uncertainty, but at the same time you believe in your own ability to be good at drafting and you wind up pairing those successfully – Man, Scott, I really do think that is a winning formula long term. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when when Mary Kay talked about 
them needing that marriage between football guy and, and analytics guy, they got it because they got a football guy who went to Harvard. That's, you know, that's Andrew Barry. He's like all in one. And I do think a trade like that could happen because, you know, if they, if they fill their needs on defense and free agency next year, let's say they go out and they get, uh, they address linebacker and let's say they address safety uh, in free agency. Well, then you're in a position in the draft where you could trade down and create and, and get some assets because, those are like the two big problem areas right now. There's they're obvious problem areas. Offense, you're in really great shape. You just need to worry about contracts and resigning people or extending people. There is the opportunity now where you you've you've addressed so many things in that first year that you can afford to get back into a situation where you're accumulating assets and and maybe then trading those for you know for players who have actually accomplished something in this league. So yeah, I, I can see that because that's Andrew Barry was part of this when it started and between being here and being in Philadelphia, he knows how that kind of stuff works. So I think we're missing one key point in all this and, and Doug, I'm going to start a sentence you said before Scott went and I'm going to finish it with what I think you should have said. If you believe in draft accumulation, then you better be a hundred percent sure you have the right head coach. And I think that's if you, when you go back and look at this Carson Wentz trade, if there's ever a, a big study done on it, I think the missing ingredient in all, in all this is going to be that the Browns were a mess at the head coaching spot. And now that Kevin Stefanski is here with a clear system, a master educator in his craft and an allocator of resources in getting a guy like Bill Callahan in the building, that then is how you maximize your, your draft capital. Because if you don't have the head coach right, then you're probably better off drafting a guy like Carson Wentz or especially Deshaun Watson and let them clean up all the messes you're making by not having your head coaching right. But if you've got the head coach right, then take as many swings as you want to and trade down. No, I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. If you have a – because a quarterback makes a head co- – a, a great quarterback can make a bad head coach look good. Exactly. But a great head coach can make multiple types of quarterbacks look good. So I do think there's a great point there. And again, it's part of sort of the loss and wh- why it is. It's sort of like a, a lost era in Brown's history, but you had to go through it maybe to get to where you are. But the outcome of it is maybe the perfect melding of all the mistakes and all the things they did right. And the Barry era and the Dorsey, not the barrier, the Sashi era and the Dorsey era and all that combined gives you Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski. And maybe it took a little longer than you thought. And so, and, and again, in the end, I think the thing that, that I think I would agree on if, I definitely think they tried to lose. I don't think they, they thought they were going to lose for two years as bad as they did, that they were going to go one and 31 so that you took miles at number one in 2017, because they're just, he was the obvious number one pick. And that if there had been an obvious quarterback there, you pass on once in 16. And if Trevor Lawrence is in the draft in 17, you're taking Trevor Lawrence instead of miles Garrett. Right. But you don't quite have that. It's the Mitch Watson Mahomes thing. If you knew Mahomes and Watson were going to be this and everybody agreed on it, you would have taken them. You didn't take them. I think they did believe they'd be better then in 17 than they were. They didn't know for sure they'd have the top pick in 2018, but what they knew they were going to have is two high first round picks because I think maybe they were prepared for, okay, we're going to have our own pick. We're going to have the Houston pick. And so now maybe if there's a quarterback we like, we got to take a quarterback at some point we'll make a deal to move up to get the quarterback we want. But then they go, oh, and 16, they don't have to. And you wind up with Baker and Denzel when they would have been prepared to package the picks that you got to get. And there's five quarterbacks in that draft. You know, if they'd had the sixth pick or the eighth pick, or if they had the 11th pick, they would have moved up to three, whatever, right? That they were going to take a quarterback. And in the end, 
the hard thing about this is there is a degree of luck involved. Sometimes, yes, if Buffalo, you know, Josh Allen wasn't the first quarterback off the board, but Buffalo got him and he got their guy. Mahomes and Watson were not the first quarterbacks taken. But sometimes there are drafts where there's a clear number one quarterback, all 32 teams agree on it, and is it, is it your year? If Joe Burrow winds up being better than Baker Mayfield, it doesn't make the Bengals smarter than the Browns. They just happen to have the number one pick that year, and the Browns had it two years earlier. And there maybe you know there wasn't as obvious as a number one pick. Everyone's going to take Trevor Lawrence. If the Jets take Trevor Lawrence, they're not geniuses. They just stunk in the right year, right? So there is, in the end, I like the Browns quarterback draft. I like the five, the five quarterbacks who were available there. You know, Rosen didn't work. Allen and Lamar look better. Darnold, I don't know what he's going to be in his lousy situation. You have Baker. You know, there wasn't as obvious of a choice. So there's the reality and there's the plan. And so I think the plan in a lot of ways made sense. And the reality is probably a tie. The reality is probably a tie. Although, and, although that 2019 fourth rounder next year, if the Browns draft like a wide receiver with that pick who catches the winning pass in the Super Bowl, the Browns clearly win this trade. I think that's how they win. Well, and that's right. I mean, like you're, you're joking, but seriously, I mean, if they, if they wind up taking, if they take the next Ray Lewis and he is the linebacker that brings the whole defense together and they got him in the fourth round, does it make the trade better? Or you just, you get lucky in the draft, but, but if you believe, but getting lucky in the draft, actually it would sort of reaffirm the point because you do have to get lucky in the draft. And the more picks you have, the more chances you have to get lucky, which is why they accumulate picks. I could do, I could do fake trade. Who won the trade? Let's go through the 19 Giffen guys in the roster. I could make this guy to watch the tape every week. I'm not sure you guys are probably leading us the correct way on what this podcast could be. Thank you for taking this dip into the unknown analytics of trade evaluation. So I enjoyed that at the very least. Um, And so we will actually zero in on this game. Ellis Williams is going to give us some key matchups coming up next on got to watch the tape. All right, back on got to watch the tape, some key matchups, Eagles Browns on Sunday. One of the ones that, will not be key is Miles Garrett because he has COVID-19 and we hope he feels better, but he will not be playing this weekend, but there are matchups beyond Miles can't play. So Ellis, what matchups are you thinking about that we're going to see on the field on Sunday? Yeah. I, I think the goal on these Friday pods going forward is I want to make this a, a matchup type of segment. You know, I want to give fans an opportunity to understand how these coaches are look at these games from, you know, really Monday to Friday and it's a, it's a game of matchups. You know, it's not just uh, battleship football and let's just call plays and hope they work. You're looking how you can scheme your guys open, where their weak links are across fronts and whatnot, and that is how game plans are formulated. So much like we did last week with the Texans, we're going to just work with the offense first of the Eagles front to back, um, starting with their DVOA ratings. They're the 28th offense overall, uh, but that's a big discrepancy in how they run versus how they pass. Uh, They're the 15th best running offense, but they don't run often. They're the 30th best passing offense, and they throw all the time. Uh, Their personnel they enjoy is 11 purse, one tight end, one running back, three receivers. They're in 12 purse in heavy situations sometimes. It's a 34% clip. We just spent a ton of time talking about Carson Wentz. One thing I'll say about that is, is, is an accuracy issues are really the story of the season right now for the Eagles. But also it's his yards per attempt. He's just not driving the ball downfield anymore. His intermediate passing is all over the place. 
the Eagles are only averaging 4.96 yards per pass play this season. If that number holds, it'll be the lowest average in the league since 1999. It, it's just this, this offense is really falling apart from a, a concept standpoint. Their drop back game is non-existent, which results in check downs, incompletions, and sloppy work. And that's where we're at with Carson Wentz right now. Um, their offensive line, of course, has a lot to do with this. I mentioned how they're the 15th best running team. They're also the 15th best adjusted line rate, meaning of how successful are their run plays and how much credit does the offensive line get for successful runs uh, right there and uh, above, uh, slightly above average. Uh, they've got some household names, left tackle Jason Peters, right tackle Lane Johnson, both around 74 PFF grades right now through the year. Uh, also their long-term center, Jason Kelsey, uh, another guy who is playing well, 72 overall grade. Where the Eagles struggle is in the interior, a lot like the Texans, both their left guard and right guard, the right guard being Matt Pryor, left guard, Nate Herbig. Uh, Herbig is a 64 overall according to PFF. He's allowed 17 pressures. Matt Pryor, 53 overall, and has allowed 16 pressures. So I'll, I'll stop there just because I want to say this. This is the first time in the season I've really been – really bummed out about how COVID could possibly affect an NFL season. Uh, today we find out Miles Garrett will not play this week. And as I, as I was prepping this, this, this segment, that is when the news broke on Garrett. And it really just put a damper on what is coming this Sunday. As if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you either enjoy listening to Doug scream and rant at us, or you actually enjoy uh, the matchups, the analytics and the numbers of football. And that is what, football is at its best in my opinion is where can we position a guy like miles Garrett to cause absolute chaos. And it would have been again in the interior versus either the left or right guard. I think miles Garrett would have had a great game. Carson Wentz um, it leads the league in turnovers. He would have had an opportunity uh, to generate some fumbles force some, some sloppy throws, potential interceptions. And now we just don't get that guys. So Doug, you asked me off the pod, what I thought about how the Miles Garrett absence would affect this team. And I said, I hadn't done the homework on it. I'll answer that question. Then I want to see what you guys think before we keep going on this. I think this happens so late in the week that it's just going to be a next man up mentality. I don't see Joe Woods changing much up about his game plan. And it's simply put, you're going to now ask guys like Olivier Vernon, uh, potentially, I don't know, here comes Porter Gustin again. I'm not even sure, but you're going to ask guys to win and beat the Eagles interior line that isn't named Miles Garrett, but you're just going to hope they do Miles Garrett things. I think that's where we're at with this matchup now. And it is a huge blow to the Cleveland Browns because they had an opportunity to really dominate the Eagles up front with their weak interior line. It feels like money time for Olivier Vernon, Scott. I mean, is there how much, how much faith should anyone have in Olivier Vernon that he can play like a number one defensive end and replicate some of the chaos that we expected Miles Garrett to wreak? Here's the thing. I don't think it matters. The, the Eagles, Carson Wentz has been sacked at least three times in eight out of nine games. And it's not like all those teams had great pass rushes. I mean, the Bengals got them three times. And I, I think the Browns are going to create pressure. I think Carson Wentz is going to run himself into pressure. He's, according to PFF, he's caused 21 of his own pressures, 10 of his own sacks this season. I don't think that's going to be – that's not, I think, what I'm 
concerned about if I'm the Browns. What I'm concerned about is the Eagles are going to do what the Raiders did and find a way to run on the Browns and the Browns can't stop it because the Eagles are kind of in that middle of the pack running game, similar to where the Raiders were. And, you know, it's going to be bad weather. Carson Wentz isn't going to be throwing it much as it is if that, you know, if that holds. And so you, then you're in a situation where the Eagles have to run. The Browns know they have to run. Can they do it? And, you know, you don't want, you don't want to get pushed back like the Raiders did to you. Do you think that, Ellis, I mean, part of it, you sort of laid out a case of that this these Eagles team likes to throw the ball, but they're not very good at it. Are they capable of limiting their pass game and saying, let's try to run on these guys? Like, why, why is it that you think that they have thrown it a lot while not throwing it well? Can they just not help themselves? What are they doing? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's a lack of discipline. Uh, Doug Peterson you look, your best player in their mind is Carson Wentz, and it makes sense on paper. So then let's give Carson an opportunity to create, play some hero ball, throw the ball all over the place. And it's been an awful decision. Uh, the, the Eagles, as I said, are not a disciplined running team. They have the fifth fewest rushing attempts in the league, despite being the 15th best running team in football. On the contrary, Carson Wentz is throwing it the seventh most. For example, in the Cowboys game, and Browns fans remember exactly what the the Browns were able to do against the Cowboys' rush defense, ran all over them without Nick Chubb. You know, that that was back when we thought Darius Johnson was going to be some sort of number two running back, which proved not to be the case. Against the Cowboys a few weeks ago, the Eagles ran it 26 times and threw it 27 times. And you'd think that means, okay, well, they're a 50-50 team, but they're actually not. They're right now uh, more of a 65-35 pass run team. So, Doug, I guess it would be Browns football luck for all of a sudden the Eagles to come in here and maybe whether having something to do with it, as Scott said, and just become this – be forced to be this run first team that they haven't been all year, and it could prove troublesome for the Browns because let's get into their running backs. Miles Sanders, uh, you know, think the the Penn State big play guy, uh, he can really run. He's he's got – Big play potential. He's third in the NFL right now in yards per carry. And that's including guys like Kyler Murray and Lamar Jackson, you know, grouping those quarterbacks in there. He's still third at, at 6.1. I think Nick, I think it's uh, Kyler Murray, Nick Chubb, and then Miles Sanders. So you, there is potential here if the Eagles just wake up to really take advantage of this, this front now. And without Miles Garrett, I understand we talk about Miles Garrett so much and how he gets after the quarterback. Miles Garrett's having a great season against the run, too. So this again is just it is brewing to be potentially a new look Eagles offense by necessity. And then that actually playing into a strength of the Eagles and a weakness of the Browns now without miles Garrett and just the way the game may go. Cause we've seen exactly what you said, what the Raiders were able to do. So part of my instinct then is like, okay, miles Garrett's not going to play. So now it's on Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb and Kareem hunt and Wyatt Teller and Joel Petonio and Jack Conklin and Jarvis Landry that, okay, all right, let's figure that Miles Sanders and Carson Wentz are going to get theirs. The Browns have to get theirs, and it might be in bad weather, so then they have to run it. Or if if it's not as windy, at least, as the past couple weeks, maybe Baker can throw it a little bit more. Should this Browns offense be able to move the ball on this Eagles defense? Ellis, is it if that's what a Browns fan is going to have maybe in their head going into this game, would that make sense? Or is there something about this Eagles defense to be like, oh, no, don't count on the Browns piling up points? Well, it's, it's the strength of the Eagles' defense lies in their D-line. 
they're they're well they're stout up front uh, mary Kay wrote earlier in this week about how they're going to get likely get pressure on baker mayfield they're third in the nfl with sacks 31 only five fewer than the nfl leading pittsburgh steelers and remember the steelers got after baker uh, and sacked him four times it against the run dvoa wise they're the 13th best uh they're more they're softer uh, on the outside uh 21st best secondary and this is gonna be a little bit of strength on strength here we know the browns are gonna not even it's bigger than you know it's, it's more dominant than try to run the football they are going to run the football regardless they're gonna run the football what it's gonna come down to is being successful on first down and then are the Browns going to be able to make plays against a weaker Eagles secondary? Uh, they have Darius Slay. They, they signed, um, traded for him actually uh, from Detroit. Uh, PFF grade of 65.2. But it, this is really, again, uh, almost a carbon copy game of, of the Texans. They, they have this one good corner on one side, but the guy opposite him, they can't figure out who, who is playing well. They really don't have anyone. Uh, they've got a, a opposite corner, Maddox. 41.5 PFF grade, uh, their nickel corner, who's nickel Roby Coleman at 55, or excuse me, 50.5 overall PFF grade. Going back and watching the tape last week, uh, Sterling Shepard had a 27-yard go route on Maddox, and then on the very next play, Golden Tate had a 38-yard slot fade against Roby Coleman. Back-to-back plays, sets up a touchdown for the Giants, which has me thinking that, of course, this Nick Chubb's probably going to get his the efficiency is going to be huge but I think this is a Jarvis Landry game and this and depending on whether this is going to come down to Baker Mayfield making some critical throws because that is where the Eagles are can be exploited and and really they're going to have to take advantage of that they're a one high team the outside boundary throws are going to be there and then Jarvis Landry has a huge advantage in the slot is this finally going to be the game we see Baker Mayfield and this passing game come alive without Odo Beckham Jr. and the weather maybe being you know, not as crazy as these past two games, we're going to find out. But that is where this team's going to have to attack them because I'm worried up front, even though that is a Brown strength, the Eagles secondary is far weaker than their defensive front. Scott, should people have a belief in that? That, you know, we've we've kind of punted the Steelers game and punted the Ravens game. Is If this is a defense with a good defensive line, is, is that okay? Should the Browns – and again, whether it's – God, we're so yeah. sick of talking about weather. Get the dome already. Get a dome. <laughs> you know, if it's beyond the weather, should Browns fans believe that this is a Sunday where the Browns offense can carry the load? I think at this point in the season, the Browns and and the fans, let alone fans, but the Browns should believe that they can run on anybody. Um, they've been through half of this season and they've seen some teams adjust to what they're doing but now they're at full strength and they should be able to deal with that. So I fully expect us to see another close to 40 carries from the Browns this season or from this Sunday, even if the weather is fine, even if it's just raining, if it's not windy, uh, that's something that you should expect to see. And I mean, we, we throw out the, the Ravens game. I think we did that because I don't know why we did that at this point, but the, it, well, it was the, week one. That the offense didn't week do a lot of the things we expected them to do. And then the Steelers game, they just didn't have their full complement on offense. So as long as Chubb's out there, as long as Teller's out there and Hunt, and that offensive line is, is good, and they do get Conklin back for this week because, remember, he went on the reserve COVID list earlier this week too. But if that's all together, then, yeah, you should expect the Browns to 
to run it between 30 and 40 times going forward. So, so in the end, Dallas, I mean, this Philly team has a couple strengths, but this Philly team has more flaws, more obvious flaws than the Browns, right? And this would be, you know, it's a tight playoff race. You can't give any games away. But this should just be the better team, the Browns, have maybe multiple ways to win. They just have some advantages. They have a better plan, it feels like. Even without Miles Garrett, even without their best player, even without the most valuable defensive player in the NFL, the Browns should have the matchup edge in enough important places to be able to handle this, right? They do. They have the advantage in a lot of spots. The Eagles receivers, uh, Travis Fulgram, has come out of nowhere this year and has sort of emerged as their quote-unquote number one despite the Giants limiting him to a, a one reception on five targets last week. What worked for the Giants was a lot of man-to-man defense, make these less-than receivers beat us in, in coverage, and they aren't able to do it. I could I could see Joe Woods doing a lot of that, trusting Denzel Ward and Terrence Mitchell on these guys. Jalen Rieger, their rookie receiver, he's a big play guy. He's battled some injuries. They're going to need to have to know where he is at all times on the field, but he only has 12 catches this year. The chemistry isn't quite there yet, and their tight end, Zach Ertz, is out, Dallas Goddard. Uh, Richard Rogers, two bigger guys, but not guys you're scared of. These guys can't separate in man coverage. So advantage to the Browns defense there. Uh, we t- already talked about how uh, if they run the ball, that may be advantageous. But again, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, the linebackers for this Eagles defense, switching to what the Browns can do offensively, complete advantage to the Browns running backs and tight ends. Uh, Nate Jerry is their leading tackler. PFF only has him at a 45 overall. He's even worse in coverage, 38 overall. He's allowed 28 receptions. Another linebacker allowing a lot of receptions, Duke Riley. This is going to be, depending on how Kevin Stefanski wants to scheme it, I suspect this is a, a Kareem Hunt 5-6-7 reception game, or it's going to be a Harrison Bryant 5-6 catches and then Kareem Hunt 3 or 4. But either way, they're going to exploit these linebackers in coverage. And then I already talked about the advantages that they have at all the other corner spots outside of their big number one in Darius Slay. So when you go down the list, really the only thing you're afraid of with this Eagles team is their defensive front and running back Miles Sanders. But that assumes that Doug Peterson is going to have the discipline to run the football. So the Browns are the better team here. It's why they're favorited. It's why when Miles Garrett was active, I thought much like you, Doug, last night saying how the Browns should run away with this one. I thought this really was a game the Browns would be able to control. I'm a little worried about the advantage up front flipping now to the Eagles and up front decides all these football games, really, especially in bad weather. But again, there's too many other weak points and the Eagles are just trending in the wrong direction. Matchup, momentum, a, a head coach advantage again for the Browns. You know, Browns fans are going to have to get used to hearing that. A head coaching advantage. That, that's real this week again. And these things are favorable. But again, there are some spots where if the Eagles do some things right, it, it could flip the other way. All right, I, I think we're, we've come down to this. The final decision on the Browns-Eagles-Carson Wentz trade will come down to who wins this game. Is that fair, Scott? It's a tie for now. It's a tie for now. But here in week 10 or week 11 of the 2020 season, this is where the final decision will be made. This is for all the marbles. You know, the Super Bowl was good for the Eagles, and yeah, the Browns got their high draft picks. And they, they're, you know, today you can look at would you rather be the Browns or the Eagles? You'd probably want to rather be the Browns, but really that can all get washed away with a loss this week. So this is it. This is the Browns Super Bowl. This is the Carson Wentz trade tracker Super Bowl. That's right. That's by Sashi Brown. 
<laughs> I will look for that post on cleveland.com. Hey, does Jannard Avery still play for the Eagles, by the way? Uh, oh, okay, great. Well, that's my answer. The answer is even if he does, it doesn't matter. Man, everybody was really in on that guy for like half a year in Cleveland, and then that didn't work out either. He's on IR. He's on IR. On IR. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's on IR. And he was still getting like, you know, hardly any snaps when he was playing. He was, it's, it's been the same thing since he arrived there. I was going to say, we might have had this all wrong. This maybe should not have been a Carson Wentz podcast. Maybe this was a Jannard Avery trade podcast. Would they get like a fourth round pick for Avery after they did that? Anyway. All right. Thanks to uh, Mary Kay Cabot for joining us in a special cameo appearance here on Gotta Watch the Tape. Thanks, as always, to Scott Pasco and Ellis Williams for their hard work. We appreciate you guys listening Tuesdays and Fridays. And sometimes I like to work things out, not behind the scenes, but in front of the scenes. I don't think we're doing next Friday because it's Thanksgiving. So we will plan on Gotta Watch the Tape next Tuesday. We'll hit everything you need to know about Browns versus Jaguars, which is the next game up. Luton. I think his name's Luton, but I call him Luton. Jake Luton. Ellis will have all kinds of stuff on Jake Luton next Tuesday. But for now, still a big one. Six and three Browns against the whatever they are, Eagles. They have a tie against the Bengals. I know that. The three, five, and one. Three, five, and one. And the AFC North still has not lost to the NFC East. So the Browns need to defend the honor of their division in this one. Uh, appreciate you guys joining us for this one. We'll catch you soon. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.